Boni is talking that Fusetta, thinner finger or thinner tumor. Do you recognise that language? Would you believe it's English? Well, Old English to be exact. And as you can hear, it's a bit different from the language we know and speak today. Spoken throughout the Middle Ages, Old English, or Anglo-Saxon, is the earliest recorded form of English. And even if we can't understand some of the words these days, it's the best place to start if we want to find out about the history and origins of our modern way of speaking. Welcome to The Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. I'm a languages consultant and polyglot. I started learning languages at the age of five and have never stopped. To date, I've studied over 50 of them, so it's no surprise you're finding me here hosting a podcast where we'll be discussing the ins and outs of the one thing that makes us uniquely human, language. The first season is devoted to the evolution of English. We'll be exploring the roots of our language, how it has changed over the years, and where it might be headed in the future. So we're starting by taking you right back to the roots of the language. And I truly can't think of anyone better to talk to us about this subject than Dr. Mark Atherton. He's a senior college lecturer at the University of Oxford, where he teaches Old and Middle English. And he's also the author of the Teach Yourself course, Complete Old English, a comprehensive guide to reading and understanding Old English with original texts. Mark, thank you for joining me. So how do we define Old English in terms of grammar and vocabulary? What is Old English? Well, in a way, you could say that Old English is still with us. It's the English that was spoken a thousand years ago. It was passed on down the generations. And so in one sense, it's just English. It's the language that each generation has been passing on. But of course, languages change over time, sometimes gradually, sometimes in leaps and bounds. So actually, Old English is different to Modern English. Quite a few of its sounds are the same. The basic vocabulary we use today for things like um, counting, on, twee, and three, or feo, fief, six, seven, after, nigon. This is recognizably English. It sounds a bit different. And then parts of the body, my head is a hevod, uh, my eyes are ayagan, nozu, muth, eiran. So the everyday words that we still use in our conversations to join words together, words like but and and, and I and you, he, his, her, him, these kind of words, they've been in the language all the time and we use them all the time. But historical events have have changed English as well. So we've had outside influences on the language. A little bit of Latin came in with the church, only a little bit, priest, bishop, words like that. But also the um, Viking invaders came along and they brought more everyday words, sometimes very similar to Old English words. So the sky is a Viking word. Skirt is a Viking word, but shirt is an Old English word. You see, these words sometimes go in parallel at the same sort of social level. But then we had another set of newcomers, the Normans, and they were the elite, weren't they? They took over the rule of the country and they brought words in like government and prison. Not that we didn't have words like that already in this language, but they replaced those words with new words derived from French. 
So we say parliament these days, whereas the old English word would have probably been moot. Your moot meant a, a place where you assemble to discuss things. And lawyers still talk about moots. And we have moot points, but we don't have the houses of moot. We have the houses of parliament these days. So old English is English without the, the French element. And then later, of course, Latin. Modern English became a borrowing language, which borrowed lots of, of words from French. And because it was borrowing, a dynamic took place. And um, Latin words crept in as well, and then Renaissance and the Enlightenment Greek words as well. So English is, has a hugely wide vocabulary, really, as, as a European language. I remember when I was at school, we did some old English at school. And the common question was always, oh, you know, or the common thing to say was that, oh, old English is more like modern German. Uh, but actually, as you're speaking, some of the sounds that you're making and some of the words that you described sound more akin to old Icelandic. How far would you agree that old English is more like modern Icelandic than modern German or modern English? Yeah, that's a very good question because um, I, I know German and I know some Icelandic. Certainly some of the sounds and the letters and spelling conventions make Old English look like, look like, especially written down, it looks like Icelandic and they have two letters for the TH sound, th and the. So that is similar to Icelandic. Icelandic and German and English or Old English are all, if you like, family members. They're like sisters and brothers. Or So English doesn't come from German. And now German and Dutch and the Scandinavian languages and English all go back to a language we sometimes call Germanic, just as French and Italian and Spanish go back to, to Latin. So we don't say that, Lat that French is derived from Italian. That would insult everybody. No, French comes from from Latin, just as German comes from Germanic and English and Icelandic come from Germanic. And they have similar things, these, these languages, these Germanic languages, as we call them. For example, German and English both have a kind of two-tense system, present and past. Those are the main tenses. If you think that you want to mark your verb with some ending or change the vowel or something like this, so we say in, in modern English, sing, sang, sung. And in old English, it was sing, well, there's a, a TH in the present tense, singeth, which you still find in Shakespeare. And the past tense was sang and sung on, and, and the past participle was sungen. It's similar to German, isn't it? Ich singe, er singt. Past tense, ich sang, I sang. Ich habe gesungen, I have sung, you know. So, so these connections are built into the grammar systems of these three languages, which make them similar. They also have things like gender. So you, all nouns are grouped either as masculine, feminine, or neuter, and that affects the endings and, and the word for the that you use with them and so on. And uh, they have case endings and we don't really have that anymore in modern English. So another difference between modern English on the one hand and these other languages and modern English and old English is that we have to use word order in a more fixed manner if we want to know who is doing what to whom. You could just mark 
the word in Old English, as you can in often in German or Icelandic, to show that it, it's to that person. We can only really do that with him or her in modern English. This present is for him. Uh, you can't say this present is for he. You have to change he to him. But those kind of changes happened with other kinds of words in, in Old English and in German, of course. So really, I think probably some of the ideas of it sounding more like German in terms of the language and closer to German is probably more to do with people remembering their German lessons at school. And, That's right, yeah. And you mentioned a bit about how Old English started taking on borrowings from different languages. Yeah. And of course, when you talk about the Norman invasion, we often think of 1066, Battle of Hastings. It's something that is in everyone's mind, everyone's consciousness. We all have that date in our brains yes. if we're from the UK. But then I think you're moving towards this idea of a Middle English where you talk about Shakespeare and the like. Where are the differences really between this delineation of Old English, Middle English and Modern English? Can we put a line through where they begin and end? So there are stages where, where the language seems to be in transition. I don't think they necessarily thought it was. And in different parts of the country, it may have been different. They always talk about how in Kent, the language was very traditional and unchanging for much longer and looked more like Old English in Chaucer's time. But what, what has happened is that the education and government of the country has changed after 1066. And so the country of England became a trilingual country, at least trilingual, we could say, because three languages in spoken and in written use were Latin, French and English, probably in that order of prestige. And French was used at the royal court for speaking. Latin was used, as it had been before 1066, for international communication, for the church, for science, for knowledge. If you're a member of the educated elite and you travelled, you might have used French, but not necessarily. You might have used Latin to get get by. In terms of literary language, really we're talking a lot of stuff was produced in, in Latin and French in those times when Old English was around. Yes, that's right. So at first, Norman French wasn't really written down. So you could almost say that they looked, oh, look at all these writings in Old English and, and got the cue from the culture that they'd conquered. But Norman, the Norman way of writing French, or the, the medieval way of writing French, influenced English as well. So we have a word like hoose, which means a house. And hoose, it was spelt H-U-S in Old English. But with the French scribes coming along, they uh, changed the spelling. If you know any French, like rouge, the stuff you put on your face, is spelt with an O-U to represent that sound. If you think in terms of sounds, it's often very useful, as, uh, you know, thinking phonetically. So the oo sound was represented in Old English by a U, oos. And in Middle English spelling, it was O-U, which they'd taken that spelling convention from French to represent a similar sound. So H-O-U-S-E in Chaucer's time was still pronounced hoose. You mentioned Chaucer because Chaucer's obviously a very famous name when it comes to Old English literature. And I think it'd be hard pressed to find people who haven't heard of Chaucer. But what are the, are there other surviving works in Old English that are particularly 
dear to you? Do you have any favourites and, and why? Yeah, if we're going right, way back into Old English, Beowulf, it, it, of course, is, is one of the classic, or perhaps the classic text in, in Old English, a kind of epic poem with, with, with a bit of an elegy attached to it at the end. But it's, it's all about the individual developing strength of, uh, of will and courage. It's a story about a hero facing monsters, as well as a story about kings and dynasties and courts and uh, courtliness. It's how to behave in this world. So uh, it's also about youth and age. When you're a young man, it's good to take risks, go travel to another country and face the enemy, which happens to be a monster, rescue that country, if you like, from danger. When you're an established king 50 years later and a dragon appears in your kingdom, is it wise, aged 70 years old, to go out there and fight it on your own? What you do as a young man is different to what you do as an old man. These are the kind of things that that make Beowulf an interesting poem to, to read and study. Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet, translated it quite famously. He translated it into modern English. Within Chaucer, sort of how how does all of that fit into the context of the evolution of the English language? So Chaucer was writing in London at a time of great change in the mid to late 1300s. Okay, so we've we've had a very well-established feudal society, but there was a the Black Death. There was the war with France. Things were changing and there was a lot of social mobility and people moving up in society. Parliament and the universities of Oxford and Cambridge had been using French and Latin uh, for their everyday teaching and they started changing to English. Chaucer seems to have started his career, career writing in French for the royal court, but he wrote he wrote his first big poem, the Book of the Duchess, for the king's uncle, John of Gaunt, in in English. And gradually, English became the literary language of the time. So there were other writers, John Gower, William Langland, people like this were were, were writing long, long poems in English. Things were changing in the religious life of the country. John Wycliffe was translating the Bible into English. This had been not allowed for really for several hundred years, although it had been allowed in, in, in Anglo-Saxon times. So a lot was going on. And as English took over in Parliament and the universities and so on, they borrowed a, a lot, lot of French words into the language because they were in everyday use. So if everyone was calling it Parlement or Parliament, then that word is going to stick. This is the Houses of Parliament. They've been called this since at least 1100 or maybe back to 1066, 1067. They started calling it Parliament. So that word didn't get changed back into its older English word, moot. It's just stuck as Parliament. And all sorts of words to describe the the life of the 14th century in literature were borrowed into the language from French. So we get a situation where suddenly it seems that the language is expanding in the 14th century. 
And of course, a lot of these French words have stuck in, in the language today. And this is why we have such a mixed uh, bag of words sometimes. We, we say king, but what's the adjective to go with king? Well, actually, it's the French word royal, isn't it? That comes from the word for a king in French, roi royal. And you can also say regal. And that comes from Latin. I've got to ask, I find it interesting because you mentioned words that how they were spelt and how they were said in Old English. Like yeah. who, you've mentioned hoose, you've mentioned moot, which are words that probably most people wouldn't be aware of. But how certain can you be of the way they sounded in Old English? Of course, it's not, it's not possible to be absolutely certain. But we can start in modern times and compare English with other languages. We can also look at the history of the language and how the spelling gradually changed. If you look at a word like Greenwich, as in Greenwich Mean Time or Greenwich in London, it was spelt W-I-C in Old English. After 1066, the French scribes added an H. That tells us something about the way I-C was pronounced. The uh, word ship was spelled S-C-I-P in um, Old English. S-C-I-P. You might think, well, how did they pronounce that? We don't know, do we? Well, we can, we can see what happened after the Norman scribes arrived and started spelling with an H. And that's how it's spelt today. It's ship. So we, we work out then that S-C must be the combination of letters to represent the sh sound, which is a single sound in phonetics. We can also think in terms of way back when the kings of Kent and Northumbria were in the year 600 were converted to Christianity by missionaries from either from Scotland and Ireland or from Italy and France. And what did they do? They wrote down the laws of, of the kingdom in Old English and the um, the scribes must have been church churchmen, and they adapted the Roman alphabet to writing Old English. So what did they do? Well, it's a lot of comparison, isn't it? You say, well, you might object, well, we don't know for sure how Latin sounded. Well, there's been a lot of comparative work by linguists on all this. If we start with the first letter of the alphabet, in most European languages, it's pronounced with some variant on a. Ah. Ah, 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 ah. These variants on that sound. We can be fairly sure that that was the sound in Latin as well. Similar with things like um, D and T or P and B. We can work out the common denominator of how these letters sounded. So we can see how these Latin scribes, these foreign scribes writing in Latin, are trying to use the Roman alphabet to represent English on the page. And they had problems, of course, um, you know, with the th, the sound of thin, this thin thorn tree, and so on. So they had to introduce new letters. Well, there was the runic alphabet, which provided one of those letters. It's called thorn, actually, that letter. And it's still used in Iceland today as, uh, to represent the th, the voiceless the sound that you get at the beginning of thorn. And the other one they used was a D, a letter D with a line through it to represent the, 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 that we say in uh, this. 
So it's a, a question of, of comparison gradually and historical work and looking at dialects and other languages. And that gives us um, a fairly decent idea of how it sounds. Let's take a quick break to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Teach Yourself Languages. Whether you're learning for cultural curiosity, travel, business, school, love or friendship, Teach Yourself puts you in charge of your language learning journey. Listeners of the Language Podcast receive a special 30% discount on Teach Yourself Language eBooks, including Mark Atherton's Complete Old English. Just follow the link in the show notes. With expert authors, 85 years of publishing experience and more than 70 languages and counting, you can start learning today with Teach Yourself. Now, coming up, Mark will tell us about the people who still speak Old English to this day. But I want to ask, we've heard many great expressions from Old English. Are there any that stand out for you or any you'd like to bring back? Leave me a message in the comments for this episode on the Language Podcast YouTube channel. Right, back to the conversation. So clearly we can hear that there are differences between Old English, Middle English and Modern English. But as these are really just evolutions of the language, can they technically be viewed as the same language? It's a difficult question, really, because you can think about different styles and registers of language. You know, that you've got um, the language of everyday conversation, colloquial language. And sometimes that feels uh, like it hasn't changed for centuries and centuries, not much. Especially when you think about all the different dialects and accents there are for speaking English all over the world. In Lancashire, where I come from, they used to use me and thee quite a lot. You know, that singular pronoun, thee or thou, in Old English it was thu, but you have to change the verb when you use thou or thee or tha. You have to say, where art thou going? Where art thou going? And where wilt thou gangan is... Here's a phrase that comes to mind in Old English. You can hear the connections there. But if you talk about um, more abstract ideas, like um, there's a word mode, which meant mind or spirit or courage in Old English. And um, Old English, like German and I guess Icelandic as well, often would take a, a, a basic root word like that and add endings onto it to create new words. We can still do that in, in modern English, but we often have taken another word and um, borrowed from French or borrowed from Latin to express the same idea. So let's take this word mode. It's actually, uh, and you could go modi, it meant courageous. Well, it's changed its meaning in modern English because mood and moody have different meanings. They don't mean courageous. If you're a moody person, you're not necessarily courageous as well. But that's the origin of it. But you could, in Old English, there's a word in the Battle of Malden, this, uh, another epic poem which I've written about, and it accuses the leader of the English at one stage, just for a little moment, accuses him, and mostly it's praise and commemoration. It accuses him of, of having too much overmode. Now, if you have too much courage, that is actually pride. And we find another word in, in Old English, overmodiness. We find it in sermons written by the church. Overmodiness is the sin of pride. 
Now, the actual word pride in modern English has come in from French, slightly roundabout route, but it, it, that's, I think, where it came from originally. So we, we don't say overmodiness anymore. There's another one as well for laziness, which I quite like, slackmodiness, which that means lazy, la- lazy-mindedness, slack-mindedness. But we don't. Some of these these lovely expressions have have alas, perhaps it's just an aesthetic thing. I quite like them, and I wish <laughs> we still used them. And and there have been people in the past who've tried to re- reintroduce some of these words uh, in the Elizabethan period. They they started talking about uh, inkhorn terms. Too many uh, scholars were introducing into their written English these flowery words. They're just inkhorn terms that you use when you're writing and nobody actually speaks them. Let's go back to Old English and revive our language. You know? and, and people like William Morris and the, uh, who else in the 19th century, there were one or two poets who wanted to bring in more Old English words. A good example is Tolkien, who was a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford University. And I, I, I think he kind of regretted that Norman conquest spoiled the aesthetic of English in, to a certain extent. That would be his view. George Orwell was another who thought that there were too many big words being used by, by speakers in order to obfuscate, to use um, a, a Latin term, to make their language less clear, uh, make it more ambiguous. Politicians like to use it. George Orwell wrote a, an essay called Politics in the English Language, where he suggested we should use an um, older, plainer style of speaking to say what you mean. And we've talked about sort of how old English has changed and what things you'd like to bring back. But are there people who speak old English? Like, you know, you get these Latin groups or yeah. uh, ancient Greek groups where they, they still learn it and they speak it together and they, they play with the language. Does that exist for English, old English? There's a word in, in the old English poems, sith, which means a journey. And uh, if you put a prefix and an ending on it, the prefix is your. Your sither is someone who travels together, a companion. And there is a society called the English and your sithers, the English companions or the old English companions. And they like to meet up and they, they revive the art and metalwork of the period. And I think they do battle reenactments and recipes and they, I think they also have conversation groups for Old English as well. Look them up online if, you, if that is something that attracts you. So there are, but I don't think it's as strong as Latin because Latin is a language which people say it's a dead language, but in my opinion, it's not. It's been around in use all over the centuries after the fall of Rome. It was used in the medieval period. As I say, as a, it was never a, a native speaker's language in the mid- Middle Ages. So Latin was in use and scientists used it in the Enlightenment. Even so, Isaac Newton wrote in Latin some of the time. So Latin is, has been a language which has been around in the schools in the 19th century. You know, people learned to, to write poems in Latin. They could travel abroad and speak Latin even in the 19th century or the 20th century. So I think there's more of a tradition of doing it with Latin. So maybe Old English is a bit more like ancient Greek and it needs people to go out there and join the English companions. Um, (laughs) And if people did want to do that, how easily can someone learn Old English? Well, I think 
what they need to do is to, to learn the pronunciation first. That even though it's a language that is no longer spoken, even if you're just reading it, it helps you to understand the language if you can convert those symbols on the page or symbols on the screen into something that's sounding in your head as well. It adds rhythm to it. You see the connections with modern English. Um, you know, if I just read you something from more or less old English conversation, so monks in a monastery, and they're explaining in a written text, but it's fairly colloquial, the signs that you have to use with your hands during the silent periods in the monastery when you had to be quiet, lit during meals and so on, you want some honey, you can do a sign which is this. And the token, the sign for honey is that you set your finger on your tongue. And in Old English, that is honius tarken. So tarken is the word for token or sign. Honius tarken, that through setter, thinner finger or thinner tongue band. Now that that's quite understandable. Is, is understandable, isn't it? And and if you start with texts like that, then you know, and you can find it in this this book here, the chapter chapter fifteen, the monastic signs, and then a bit later you you might be able to move on to Beowulf, and Beowulf is challenged when he arrives in Denmark as a young man. What sindenje, if you know Latin or German. Mm-hmm. And think hard, what sindenye must be, what are you? What manner of men are you who've come all this way to Denmark? And his, the name of his king is Hialak. He says, we sind Hialakas beardjoneatas. Okay, beardjoneatas is a literary word from Old English poetry, which has not survived into modern English. But it's one of these companion words. Yoneat means a companion, and beard means table. We are Hialak's table companions. In other words, we are his courtiers. We sit at his table and we partake of the beer and the feasting. So he says, We sint Hialak's beard, Yoneatus. Beowulf is Minnama. Okay, that's understandable. E- e- even in the middle of a complex Old English poem full of literary vocabulary and so on. There are everyday phrases that you can get. So the answer to my question is you you can't do it overnight, but perhaps gradually start with the pronunciation, get a feel for the rhythm of the language and how it sounded, and this will help you. Perhaps you could do it in a year, doing a little bit every week. There's a challenge for you. (laughs) Yeah, something we can all take on, I think. Who is typically learning Old English nowadays? though and and why do they do it i think there are at least three groups of people out there who are learning old english there are my students who are studying literature at university and we want them to hear the original poetry we don't want them to interpret seamus heaney's beowulf we want them to read at least some of the poem in the original language because things get lost in translation You know, even Beowulf at this moment starts with his name. Beowulf is Minnama. So there's a different effect to starting with your name and then then saying, that's my name. You know, Beowulf, that's my name. That's a pattern that you get in in Old English epic poetry. Uh, And it's only a very simple example, but we want them to be able to 
to hear the rhetoric, to hear the poetry of it. So people studying English literature, they're one set of people. What about the people who want to to find out about uh, the names of the streets in our towns and um, the walls of, of Oxford and the walls of Chester and the walls of Winchester and the field systems and the origin of our institutions and the names of our counties. I'm talking about historians and to a lesser extent archaeologists. These people will also want to to know about Old English and then they can read the documents and compare the documents with the archaeological record. So historians are also interested. And then I think there, there are people who, are, for their own general interest, would like to know more about the origins you know, of our, our literature and our institutions and our towns and countryside. But also, the, where does our language come from? And why is the, lang- the language that we speak the way it is? And I think those people will, will be interested in, in Old English, whether you're, you're English British, whatever your identity is, Irish, American, New Zealand, uh, from the Caribbean, the origins of the English language have helped to shape the way the, the language is today and could be of interest to any, any speaker of English in the whole wide world, to use a good um, old English expression, in the whole wide world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, it's really good to have resources like your book, Teach Yourself Old English is also a great book to go through for anybody interested in the language as well, of course. Whenever you talk on this topic, whether it's with students, whether it's with just people down the pub or wherever you are, is there something that typically surprises them? I suppose some people are surprised to hear that, to find out that everyday spoken Old English could actually sound quite close to modern English. Another thing is that we use a lot of names, you know, names of people, personal names, names of towns and villages and fields, and and to realise that they have meanings, that can be a surprise, and that you can actually tap into those meanings fairly quickly once you've started to learn Old English. That can be a surprise to some people. Some people are surprised by the way English has changed, you know, the fact that it's borrowed all these words from French and in, in later times. Some people like the idea that, you know, that in Scottish English or in Scots, that hoose is still the, the old pronunciation. Or, for example, in Scots, that they still say, or in Northumbria, they still say bands for the, the little kids, the little children, because that's the old word for children, the old word for, for baby and baby is a modern word which came in uh, several hundred years ago, but the old word is bairn, and it comes from the verb bear to bear a child. Yeah, there are all sorts of surprises for, depending on the person, I guess. And is there a specific piece of information that you particularly enjoy sharing? I think it's interesting sometimes to realize that you can get the wrong ideas. Some people. Th- when they hear, you know, with this ring, I thee wed, oh, so thee is very formal English, is it? Because it's used in the old-fashioned wedding ceremony. Well, actually, no, the, the thou, which is sometimes used in, in dialects even even nowadays, the thou word is, is the old singular word, you know, that, that, that is still preserved in many European languages as tu or tu or du, 
And so that's the old word which was singular, and then it was the ye, yo, uh, ye, you, ye, and you, which is is the formal word. And English, modern English, has has, has normalised the formal word, and we just say you nowadays. So in the English speaking world, you is very common. It's very easy to be informal in, in when you're speaking English. In German and French, it's harder because which word are you going to use with the person you're speaking? Are you going to say tu or vous? Are you going to say du or sie? Whereas in English, we can just say uh, you and avoid that problem. So we actually, it seems that social interaction, especially on the first meeting, can be more informal in English, which is sometimes a, a surprise, I think, uh, to German speakers. Yeah, and they make jokes about it. Oh, you can say you to me is, is yeah. a joke. <laughs> Because, of course, we've only got one word for you and uh, we don't have to specify which word we use. Which is why in English it's surprising that actually it's the formal you that became the dominant one and yeah. and even became a very informal thing, yeah. which is on two fronts quite bizarre. Yeah. But as I say, you know, the, the, the old thou, the thou form, even in, in Yorkshire and Lancashire, it tends to be me and thee or than O's and so on. But I think even in the 1980s, school teachers were worried that their kids were in the primary school were saying me and thee to the teacher. And they thought that was, wasn't quite correct to do that. <laughs> That's what I heard anyway. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today and, and for sharing your knowledge and experience of Old English. Uh, it's been great to get an insight into the origins of our language. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. Remember to share your favourite Old English phrase in the comments. Something from this episode or something we haven't mentioned yet. I'd love to hear which phrases you'd like to bring back into use. If you enjoyed listening to Mark, maybe you'll want to start learning Old English yourself with Mark's Teach Yourself course book. Or check out his latest book about the Battle of Malden, an historical Viking invasion that took place in the year 991. Coming up in our next episode, we'll be talking to Jess Zafaris about Middle English, the language that succeeded Old English following the Norman conquest of 1066. And for a special treat, you might be surprised to learn that Mark sings in a band and he writes songs based on Old English poems. Here, he sings a tune based on the Old English poem, Riddle 60. And you'll find a link to the original video in the show notes. podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.